a friendly advanced warning. When I finish preaching today, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And when I announce then that it's time to pray, how about you don't be the one to hastily close and slam down somewhere your Bible. I'm going to suggest that keeping the Bible open might be a useful way to help us pray this day and many other days. I'm sorry for our visitors here because tomorrow we'll start with the most sizzling story from the early 1990s. I'm sure most of you had been born by then. Uh, but this morning's, this morning's nostalgic story comes from a few years after that. I was meandering around the La Trobe University bookstore and, and who would have guessed it? They actually had a religious book for sale. Now, I can't remember why it caught my eye because it wasn't a particularly compelling or detailed front cover. But I picked it up and flicked through it anyway. There you go, not just a religious book for sale, but a Christian religious book. And its author was a Bible broadcaster and he was warning about the second coming of Jesus. Now, he recognised that the Bible says we cannot know the day or the hour, but he was sure he'd worked out the month and the year. <laughs> and it was September 1994. He kind of broke his own rules because he's on record as saying it's somewhere around the 6th of September 1994. And... You may have noticed that date's been and gone and uh, on about the 7th of September he suddenly revised it to the end of September 1994. Some of you were in primary school when that happened. One or two of you are still in nappies. But here all of us are now middle-aged and, and heading a little beyond and it seems... I am speaking precisely for myself with the illustration that I left out. <laughs> that date has been and gone. And suffice to say that I actually found this book in 1995 where it was on sale in the discards table. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say that Harold Camping hasn't got a monopoly on end times calculations. When I teach the book of Revelation, uh, I regularly point students to the Rapture Index. It's a web page which updates these 45 different variables to tell us how close Jesus is to return. These are the re readings updated on Monday. Uh, and, and you can breathe a sigh of relief. The net total is 187 down from 188, which is the all-time high we've been at for most of the rest of this year. Mind you, they say that any number over 160 on their prophetic index means fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> and it's also ironic that in the top right-hand corner, number 35, that the setting of dates is one of the measures of the nearness of Jesus' return. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. Now, I hope you're just as uncomfortable with all of this date setting as I find myself. It is so embarrassing when people who teach God's flock and who direct unbelievers also start <coughs> speaking like this. It, it might be slightly less offensive when it's more of a sectarian group like the JWs or the Mormons or various others, but when it's some of our fundamentalist brothers and sisters who hold up a Bible and preach the name of Jesus and do this, it's that little bit harder to stomach. It's on occasions like those that we need to have Matthew 24 squarely in front of us and there's a single key message in today's passage, and it's not in any way difficult to spot. There it is in Jesus' instructions from verse 4. Jesus answered, 
Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. The same warning is repeated later in verse 23 and verse 26. Each time, Jesus is warning his disciples the same thing. When someone tries to tell you, this is it, do not believe it. Here's the Messiah. We know when he's coming back. My group has the secret. Do not believe it. Of course, it's fair enough to ask what we can know about Jesus' return. It's a big theme in several of the letters, especially the letters of Paul. Uh, it remains a big draw card at the box office as movie after movie graphically shows the demise always of New York and Washington and a few other select landmarks and then the dystopian survival of a few brave survivors afterwards. We want to know what happens. We make it the basis of jokes. Like when you or I walk into the registrar's office and find it oddly empty. Uh, we wonder if the sudden silencing of this normal hive of activity means that they've all been taken to heaven. Well, don't panic, friends. There is no need to fear. It's not that the registrar rapture has occurred. And it's not that faculty and students are somehow less worthy and have been left behind. No one will miss that final coming of Jesus. From verse 26, so if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible flashing right over into the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When something dies in the desert, you can tell from miles away because you'll be able to see flocks of vultures gathering there. At the end of time, it will be no small, subtle thing that we fear we've not noticed. We won't miss it, yet neither can we predict it. As we'll see tomorrow in verse 36, about that day or hour, or month or year, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It's no good saying the start of September 1994 or then suggesting the end of September 1994. Harold Camping didn't learn to read Matthew 24. And in more recent memory, I hope you're all old enough to remember to pay attention to the news, uh, he's been about promoting May 2011 with a bunch of billboards, uh, particular dates that we'll talk tomorrow about uh, false predictions. May 21 came and went. And then an embarrassed and slightly puzzled Harold Camping sat down and decided that something did happen on May 21, but Jesus' physical return was going to be a little bit later on October 21, and so on and so forth. Watch out that no one deceives you. So why then do we struggle to foolproof our brothers and sisters? <coughs> Why do we struggle to proof them against fools? Why isn't the warning that Jesus gives here as obvious as it seems to be, as obvious to everyone as it should be? 
Let me outline four reasons why I think we struggle with this chapter and its warning. First, and very simply, many Christians want Jesus to return. We want the message of the chapter to tell us that Jesus is coming back and not that all of these events remind us that he's not yet here. We want to hear that we are reaching the end of our waiting, that Jesus will be here tomorrow or shortly, even though Jesus expressly says all this is just the beginning of birth pains. Second, we've been guided by a whole raft of poor readings of this chapter to presume that it says something along those lines. I can't work out how it's worked its way into my Christian upbringing, but all of those phrases early in the chapter run around the back of my mind as second nature. Wars and rumours of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines and earthquakes. I don't recall any overt sermons when I was growing up or Sunday school teaching along these lines, but these are phrases and ideas that bubble around in my environment that, that are sitting in my vocabulary. I mean, yes, there were those daggy movies of last century about the rapture and people disappearing. I was really disappointed to confirm this week that the urban legend isn't true. Qantas doesn't assign a non-Christian co-pilot whenever there's a Christian pilot on duty, just in case he's raptured. But people have had to ask the American FAA to verify this claim. I haven't yet got round to reading the Left Behind series, the daggy books and movies of this century, but it's that same scenario all over again. We want Jesus to come back. We have some vague inkling that we should be seeing that here in this chapter. And a third and far less simple reason can trip up the most sophisticated Bible interpreter. We're conscious that the chapter also has elements that talk about the fall of Jerusalem. That's something that took, back, took place way back in the year 70 AD and it can mess with our grasp of what Jesus is predicting. Now it's great because that shows some responsible awareness of the exegetical issues and the interpretive matters. Have a look at the opening verses of the chapter. At the end of the last chapter, Jesus has just finished his tirade against the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He's lamented over Jerusalem's inability to heed God's words and he warns that their house is now left to them desolate. So as chapter 24 opens, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. You and I might neglect just how grand the Jerusalem temple was. It's often touted as one of the most magnificent buildings in the Middle East at the time. Just as our friends at Logos Bible Software can aid us in our classroom and our studies so they can enhance our sermons, here's a photo taken by their live correspondence eyewitness in the first century. And heading out to the Mount of Olives, which is where we're all standing, uh, Jesus looks back and gives them the most shocking of news. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And we know precisely that that's what happened within four decades of this prediction. Now the disciples, of course, cannot believe that God would do such a thing to his beloved temple. And certainly, if and when that were to happen, that would be the final sign of the onset of the kingdom of God and the beginning of God's new eternal reign, hopefully with the disciples in some positions of power. 
So notice right here that our disciples are setting the agenda for the rest of the chapter when with a note of uncertainty, a note of incredulity, possibly with undertones of power hunger, they turn to him and ask two questions about when and how this will occur. Tell us, they said, when will all this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So we know from the words recorded here that the answer is giving a two-part answer to a two-part question. On the one hand, Jesus is answering the question about the destruction of the temple. At the same time, he's also responding to their question about his return and the end of the age. They might have presumed that those two events would take place simultaneously, but with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that there's at least 2,000 years between those two events. And yet we find that those two answers are intermingled in this chapter. And good and careful Bible interpreters look to see how they are or aren't intermingled. And we've already seen examples of people who fail to think about how they might be linked or at least answered together in the chapter. Well, in many ways from our perspective today, it doesn't substantially matter which signs are which. I'm going to break it to you that I don't think we can work out particularly when the abomination that causes desolation is. It may well have been in the past. It might possibly be in the future. But all of these other events, wars, famines, earthquakes, false teachers, were already in full swing by the time that 70 AD came around with the fall of Jerusalem. We can easily understand why good, reputable scholars will argue that this whole chapter is about then, is about the fall of Jerusalem, is all completed by 70 AD. But we also find that these same events continue to keep happening. And we can see why Bible readers through every era, not just the last 30 years of excitement, not just the advent of the web and rapture indexes, but people at every era have wondered if they've reached the end and if Jesus is about to return. That is, at every era, we wonder if we've reached the end of the timeline. But I think the point of the chapter is that these are linked. What was happening every year and every decade up to the fall of Jerusalem has continued to happen every year and every century that has passed is an ongoing series of signs that Jesus has not yet returned. They all typify these eras of Jesus' speech and his final return and the signs continue to happen because Jesus' message is true, that it is continuing to be the beginning of the end and not the arrival of the end. And while I think that's complex in itself and I won't have scratched every itch right now, this observation I think leads us to a fourth reason why we struggle with this chapter. It's kind of the flip side to the first reason I suggested. Because it turns out I don't want to read a chapter like that. I don't want to discover that there's an ongoing era that Jesus describes. It'd be much tidier if everything were in the past and been and gone and I can just treat it as a historical curiosity. Or it would be really nice if this is all somewhere in the future and I can defer it until I really uh, have to accept that all of this is taking place and Jesus is just around the corner. It's far less thrilling to think that all of these signs and discomforts typify every century back then and now and for whoever knows how much longer. And when I find myself thinking like that, I find myself realising 
that I've been deceived. No, I've not been caught out by date setters and looking for Jesus' urgent return. Uh, I haven't been tricked by the blatant prosperity gospel of some of the prominent televangelists, but I have somehow imbibed a simpler, perhaps more insidious version of the prosperity gospel, one that gets pushed by the society around me and by the churches to which I belonged. Somehow I've fallen into a trap that life for the modern Christian should run fairly smoothly most of the time. Yeah, I know there have been pockets of persecution throughout history and I'm glad I didn't live then. And yes, when we bother to look at our news or talk to our missions reps, we hear that there's ongoing persecution in many parts of the world today. And we should be grateful for the comforts that we enjoy. But I find myself thinking and then embarrassed to confess that, look, if I'm following Jesus and diligently waiting for his return, if I'm reading and studying and teaching his word, if I'm praying the right ways and living the right way, then shouldn't I somehow be bypassing all these uncomfortable human and natural disasters? I notice it in my prayers. I notice it in our corporate prayers. We ask God that Auntie Maud might recover from her health problems, as if perfect health is a standard we should expect. We pray for the safety of our friends and family when they're travelling. We beseech God for the peace in many troubled parts of the world. Now, I think some of these are fair things to pray for, but I found myself falling into the trap of thinking that if I pray for them and I'm living in all the right godly ways, then surely God will be pleased to bring them to pass. I've started to pick up some kind of evangelical prosperity gospel. Yet when I come back to the Bible... I discover that it's much less concerned to promise any optimistic outcomes on any of these measures. When I look at Acts, we find at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, Luke gives us a few verses summarising about a thousand kilometres of travel for Paul and Barnabas, and he records one sentence as they go back to their newly planted churches and encourage the fledgling leaders in those churches, and the sentence reads, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Welcome to the year of discernment or your next evangelistic sermon. When we look to the book of Revelation, it's full of acknowledgement for the difficulties of Christian churches. The same with many of the epistles and even earlier in Matthew's gospel as well as in today's passage. We find little evidence for some of our contemporary church comforts. I'm often surprised when our churches pray for peace given that, as Lindsay reminded us a few weeks ago, Jesus himself warned, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And, as hard as I try, I can't find but more than one prayer for any kind of peace in a geopolitical situation in the Bible, and that's an Old Testament prayer for Old Testament Jerusalem. Praying against war is not a bad thing, but... I'm not fully convinced it's a biblical thing. And I think that it's a symptom and then a short logical step before we move towards praying more for our own comfort than for the sorts of things that the Bible does model for our prayers. It's a tricky area. It's one that I'm still thinking through. Uh, But certainly I worry that I have fallen prey to a 21st century cult of self as I spot 
increasingly a sense of entitlement and self-concern in others, I'm embarrassed when I discover it's been sinking its claws into me as well. And a passage like Matthew 24 starts to show up some of that. I'm aware that we haven't looked closely at some of the middle verses in the chapter. And again, it's tempting to consign all of them to some time in the past or perhaps to some occasion in the future. But we can't avoid reading from verse 9 and finding here some truths that do apply to all times. Then you, presumably Christian disciples, will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most or the many who are deceived will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And on a slightly more encouraging note, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I'm uncomfortable hearing about Jesus' expectations of a world that will include suffering and persecution and even death for his followers. I don't want to know that many within the church will turn away and hate and be deceived. I don't want to read that the love of those even within the church can be turned cold. And as Revelation reminds us, an idea not just that Christians might hate each other, but that they might stop acting in love towards others. It's a nasty, gloomy picture and one which Jesus thinks we need to be forewarned of. There it is in verse 25. See, I have warned you ahead of time. Sisters and brothers, it's a sober message this morning because it's a sober warning that Jesus brings with to his disciples. Watch out that no one deceives you. If you're tempted to count the days until Jesus returns, you're in for a futile exercise. Come back tomorrow and we'll talk a little bit more as we read and reflect on what it means to wait patiently for his coming again. If you're tempted to ignore this chapter of Scripture and consign it to the too hard basket, well, at least you can join the club with many interpreters who find it difficult, especially difficult to read and interpret responsibly. And watch out, lest false messiahs and false prophets and the society around us might succeed in twisting our expectations so that we seek a degree of comfort and peace for ourselves beyond what Jesus has promised. For he is coming again. And verses 29 and following at least describe the return of the Son of Man coming with the clouds. But we don't know when. And I'm sorry to break it to you that he tells us that life in the meantime isn't going to look like a television commercial. On that sober note, let's pray from the text. Our majestic God, Father, Son and Spirit, we join our voices with those of generations past asking that the Father might soon send the Son. Your world is groaning around us. As we wait for that day which will surprise everyone prepared and unprepared, protect us from being deceived. Keep us alert to those who would mislead us. Guard us from turning away from the faith and betraying and hating each other and finding our love and actions growing cold. Please use these warnings in your word to aid us in standing firm to the end. 
Keep us in your grace and in your ministry, assisting in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world until that time when we do see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Amen.